Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 369 and I had a conversation with my dear friend, Danny Myrick. Danny is the son of a Baptist minister father and church pianist mother. His family's gospel band recorded their first album when Danny was only seven, and by 17, he had his first number one song. These days, he's one of country music's biggest songwriters, writing for stars like Blake Shelton, Montgomery Gentry, Lil Cash, so many more. He's co-produced his good friend Leslie Jordan's 2021 gospel album, Companies Coming, which came out right before Leslie died. And Danny's currently traveling around much of the year performing music, which is his big love. He's a great producer, great songwriter, great person. He and his wife, Megan, are two of my most favorite people in the whole wide world. So I'm really excited for everybody to hear this one. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and my show. Uh, check out susanruth.com. Learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your music. Look for my albums, uh, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, How to Say Goodbye, Surfacing to Breathe. There's a bunch up there. Also, check out my Relationships and Sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman on YouTube. You can find it under Are We There Yet? podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Super duper helpful. Please rate and review. It will make me very happy. Yay! And thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Take care of each other. Be well. Stay safe. Be love. And... Here we go. Danny Myrick, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you very much. I'm so excited. I'm so happy to be human. <laughs> I have wanted this interview for so long. We've well, talked we about it forever. We have. It's been years at this point. Yeah. Just How long have we known each other? Um, we, well, I met you for the first time. I think the first time I remember you was in Key West, probably like <laughs> 2000. Nine or ten, maybe. Yeah, since about eleven, right. something. So it was over ten years. For the sure. first time I remember you was when you and Megs uh, were in Eddie Eddie's studio. Oh, that's right, Eddie Gore's studio. Yeah, at that party. That yeah, that's right. That would have probably been around that same time. Yeah, that was uh, it a had zillion years 2010 ago. or eleven. I mean, that's so long ago. Long time ago. Cheers to a long friendship. Cheers. Well, I adore you. You and your wife, Megs. And are. we adore you. Two of my most favorite people on the whole planet. It's a very short so, list, so we have a very short list and are consistently um, <laughs> uh, shrinking the circle. All right, shrinking the circle. Maybe that's the shrinking name of the this. circle. Maybe so. <laughs> so. Shrink the circle. Let's get uh, into your upbringing. I grew up on the coast in Pascagoula, Mississippi, which is the birthplace of Jimmy Buffett. Um, it's also the the song reference for. Ray Stevens' Mississippi Squirrel Song, which you probably don't know, but but a lot of old country people who grew up with that. It was it's this whole story about the squirrel that went berserk in the first self-righteous church in the sleepy little town of Pascagoula. That's my town. So, What's a self-righteous church? I think he was making the point of 
okay. He was making the whole song. I was like, that sounds The right whole on the song nose. was on the nose about these self-righteous people. Got it. And they were all being all self-righteous on a Sunday morning in this uh, little sleepy town in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And a squirrel got in. And it disrupted everything. Went up the skirt of the pastor's wife on the piano and all stuff. Love it. Just, I, moved, I went to Nashville to go to Belmont. First show I went to was at the Cannery. And Ray Stevens was the artist. And I went up to him and said, hey, man, I'm from Pascagoula. He played this song. I said, get the hell out of here. I said, no, I promise. So I pulled my driver's license out and showed it to him. He goes, unbelievable. You're the first person I've met from Pascagoula. How long did it take you as a child to learn how to spell your hometown? I learned it pretty early. I mean, we moved down there. We moved down when I was six. So I was, I think I I started first grade in in Pascagoula. So at that point, you know, and it's an an Indian word that means uh, singing river. So our hospital there was Singing River Hospital. So anyway, I got a course. That's I grew cool. up in Pascagoula. No, it's um, all the course. Everything yeah. is on the course. By the well, way, I like just that. It's all for the, the listeners, uh, we are in Danny and Megan's hotel room. They are visiting right now. So I'm. I said, let me do it today. There's a potential of hearing like shower cut off or yeah. you know toilet flush. Just what I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So I, you know, my dad was a a pretty conservative, sort of hellfire damnation preacher, and my mom played piano. So we had a family band. We started really, really young. You know, made our first album when I was seven. And I just kind of, it was like the Partridge family with the Bible, kind of how I always describe it. Not a whole lot going on down there other than, which we can get into later or whatever, but with my music thing, what was so great about it is my dad not only pastored churches, but we had this band, so he would promote gospel concerts with the big Southern gospel groups of the day, like the Oak Ridge Boys at the time. and. The Happy Goodman family and uh, the Hensons these, the, the, in that world were huge, and we would open for them. So that's what it made us better, and that's where my songs, once I started writing, got some exposure. What was that like being? I mean, um, obviously, we only have the reference of where we are, but as a little kid growing up, surrounded by that, as you put it, hell and fire mm-hmm. type religion did you take that on as a kid or was oh, absolutely. it just so it's interesting especially the way you said it like all you know is all you know at the time it just was my entire existence like it's all i knew and because of our family band we became fairly prominent in it so i was able to sort of feel rock star vibes pretty young even like in high school like i was kind of a nerd kid but I started dating a girl right before my senior year who I ended up marrying that she was pretty popular and that kind of pulled me into her crowd a little bit and like I won our school talent contest with a gospel song but I think we had such a following but yeah the Hellfire Damnation thing it's just sort of like it's just a shame based you know God basically is sort of like this um, you know accountant with a a cane to swat you with as he keeps up with your good and bad behavior. The ledger from hell. Yeah, the ledger from heaven sending you to hell kind of thing. And what really made it worse as I look back is that, you know, then my my dad was the pastor, so my my dad was the sort of the conduit to God. So my representation of however God was, then I saw my dad who was also very strict, very intense not the most engaging conversational dad and so yeah so I was I had a very very skewed view of who God was that you know as I've gone, gotten older <clears throat> being able to look back that's all changed but at the time yeah I was very steeped in it 
It's interesting, too, because when we're little, our parents are our God. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this extra added God plus God. Mm-hmm. must have been very intense. And really brought it home. I mean, it was really like our, our whole life was like, um, like you just pray about everything. It's only a little bit facetious to say, like, you know, you pray about your Christmas budget or you're driving to the mall during Christmas where it's going to be super crowded. And, you know, God, give us parking lot favor. I mean, today. I do that now. Yeah, I know, right. I mean, I do that, but, you know, I do it more out of, like, these uh, days. I definitely like pray fingers. to my parking angels. <clears throat> yeah, but it's kind of like, at that point, it was like, you know, I mean, every, every little thing. And so what it begins to do is it absolutely, when you're young, especially you get to high school, everything from going on a date to what classes you take to thinking about college to buying a car whatever everything becomes like man should i get the latte or the just the dark roast coffee like i don't know man god what would you want me to have as opposed to like you just kind of lose your agency like you forget that even through that god filter it's like if you want to choose to believe that it's like god gave you the freedom to make wise decisions and just choose the things you want to choose you know? were you able to listen to secular music no. in the home no no and so that's that's one of my greatest frustrations looking back we listened to country music a little bit and you know my grandfather was a was an old school country music fan and he was kind of my first influence outside of my mom because he he loved like hank williams and bluegrass music and he played um what he called a flat top guitar and which was just an acoustic guitar he sang a lot like hank williams we were able to listen to some country music and then uh, when we were little my brother and i we shared a room my older brother who's a year older we shared a room, and we would sneak one of those little, um, you know, radios that we could run really, really quiet, and we'd listen to the Dr. Demento show on Sunday night, who's playing all the latest pop hits, and 94QID from Biloxi. We would sneak that and listen to all the pop music. Um, and then the Eagles came out, and because they had harmonies, and this was pre-MTV, so my parents couldn't see that they were long-haired, you know, Marijuana, smoking and hippies, you know. Singing about drugs and sex. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, but they didn't, they didn't know that at the time. I thought, you know, they weren't paying attention to the, I want to sleep with you in the desert, you know, with the stars all around. They weren't, they just knew the harmonies were great. So we were able to sneak that a little bit. But. How does a kid grow up with that sort of pressure? Sneaking music, sneaking, just growing up. I mean, masturbation, thoughts about girls, thoughts about going somewhere other than being with the family. Mm-hmm. What if you start to doubt God? How do you carry those things in your little bucket and still have time to be a kid? That's a good question. I mean, I think as I look back on it, my childhood, our street that we grew up on was kind of similar to the Wonder Years. So I was about a 15-minute bike ride to the beach. We had a bunch of friends on our street. We lived on a like a little cul-de-sac street that had a curved end to it. So on our block, a bunch of kids we played with and went to school with. So. I was able to dive in with them. It's also South Mississippi, so it's a pretty conservative spot anyway. A lot of the people in the street went to church with us. Looking back on it, the complication was like like the, the things really that you're talking about as you hit puberty, mm-hmm. starting to feel like everything you're feeling in your body is wrong. And so that's all shame-based. And so it's not even as far as masturbation. It's even, you know, you know the girl I remember specifically, I'm not going to say her name, but I remember a girl like coming back from the summer between 7th and 8th grade, this girl that everybody really liked at school suddenly grew boobs and suddenly it's like but you can't it's just things you can't talk about and so they just never got discussed and the only time they got discussed is if you 
if anybody said anything about an attraction like that, then you sort of got, you know, you got in trouble a little bit for lusting. It would bring up things, you know, uh, the scriptures in the Bible that talk about lusting and things like that. And so, yeah, it, it definitely creates, and, you know, it's taken me my whole life, honestly, to work through the feelings that I had through high school and college regarding shame that, you know, you look back now, it's like you're just feeling what every teenager feels. But at that time, it's like, you know, God doesn't approve of that. When you were studying the Bible inside and out, did you have any particular stories that you loved the most? Well, I really, I loved the the, the Moses story. That's loved, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. And of course, we watched the Ten Commandments every year at Easter or whenever it came on. I loved his lack of confidence and, you know, God, you got the wrong guy. And God's like, no, I got the right guy. I, and that, that still rings so true Same. in life. I love that. Love it. And then as I got older and just sort of wrestling with shame and stuff in my life, you know, anything to do with David, you know, it's funny, David was such a fuck up and he lusted after the woman that was his neighbor, took her for his own, put her husband on the front line of the war, essentially had him killed. And he just was this, this polarizing swing of, you know, praise and worship and God, you are the most awesome, blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly he's in the shame and he's like, woe is me, I'm undone and unclean and, you know, not worthy to stand before you. And then he was the one that the Bible says is, is a man after God's own heart, which I always thought was fascinating. And that kind of got me through a lot of things as I was, you know, swinging through all those things in my life of going, you know what? Even the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He was a musician. He danced in the street in his underwear. He had a lot of freedom. I've done that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, we have we all. Uh, maybe not. If I were an omnipotent being, and omnipotence, of course, being you know everything, mm -hmm. my biggest confusion, I'll say, with organized religion is that they have said, here is this omnipotent thing. But then I'm going to put all these rules and regulations about what it can and can't know or mm -hmm. or be. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I think if I was an omnipotent being, I would look to the flawed, whatever that means, as mm -hmm. the most interesting. Because I think it's more joyful for a being to say, come to me because you've been told you have to or come to me because you've realize that that feels right and that we're in this sort of communal, communicative communion partnership. Yeah. I think the latter is the more well, perhaps, engaging um, perhaps, in my mind. Uh, this omnipotent being has very little to do with the organized church. Yeah, I would also go on a limb and say yeah, that. Perhaps. Yes. I think God very clearly, I, I don't, I've worked through that my whole life. What is God? Who is God? Whatever. But if God is even remotely the crea creator of the universe and the maker of us all and omnipotent, omnipresent, all that kind of stuff, then um, I think he, she, whatever, welcomes flawed people. The Bible is, is, is the New Testament. It's, very, mm -hmm. it's a very vivid picture of uh, God's love for broken people. It's the, pro it's the story of the prodigal son. You know, which is a very complicated story, like in the organized church. Like I grew up around, you know, missionary Baptists and Southern Baptists. Um, the brother who stayed home the whole time and didn't squander anything and was there with his father the whole time and behaved and did all the right things, they didn't throw a party for him. It was the flawed son who wasted everything and, you know, did all the things and came back and the father ran out and met him 
down the road at the end of the driveway. It said, kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. You know, the prodigals returned. And I think that it's hard for people in the organized church to see themselves as the prodigal, you know, because I think that they spend all their time trying to check the list. Hmm. But they actually are the prodigal. It's very profound. Yeah. Uh, how many siblings total? Two brothers, one a year older and another 10 years younger. That's a biggie. Yeah, that was a fascinating thing. I don't want to like get too deep into his life, really, but um, he was, uh, <laughs> I mean, just the crux of it was my dad thought he couldn't have any more kids. So when my mom said, Surprise. Surprise, he was like, yeah, it is a surprise. Who have you been with? What's going on? Like, he did not rea- react well to that. Probably a story for another time, but that was that was a complicated, really a whole life for my younger brother. I don't know that he ever felt super... Welcome. Welcome and wanted and desired. Are you close to them? Yeah, we're real close. He lives in Franklin, just south of Nashville. I had no idea. Yeah. I can't believe I've never met your sibling. You would, lo- you would love Jeff, yeah. I mean, you would love both my brothers. Um, Robbie, my older brother, lives in Birmingham. Probably the most talented of all of us musically growing up. That's a big... But it was two two different lives because, you know, me and my older brother grew up like twins. And we had our little family band. We did all this, all like twins. And then by the time my younger brother came along, you know, like when he was, we're getting ready ready to go to college when he's seven. So he started playing drums really young with us because we played bass and guitar. And, but then we took off. So we had to go through kind of junior high and high school without us there, which must have been tough. Now, I know that for kids to carry all that has got to be stressful, first of all. I mean, it also, I'm sure, is super exciting and joyful, too. I mean, that's the the most interesting thing about the duality of it all. But do you have a story about a demon dream? (laughs) I love this story. Would you tell it? Yeah. Well, we had gotten to a point, so it's, it's really interesting. As a setup for this, with our family band... Because we had guitars and drums and stuff. I got, for Christmas when I was nine and my brother was ten, I got a bass, he got a guitar. So literally within three months, we're playing every service in church. And we just would come home every day from school, turn on country radio stations, and start playing with them, learn how to play. This was pre-YouTube and all that, obviously. So a lot of Baptist churches didn't allow instruments like that in their churches. It was kind of piano only, piano organ. Because the devil's attached to the guitar. That's right. So we started playing in Pentecostal churches. It's great for a musician because suddenly they have all the instruments and, you know, dancing at the altar with tambourines and speaking Mm -hmm. in tongues and all the stuff. It's a fascinating service. It's a wild thing. Yeah, wild ride. And so, but we loved it because even like the altar calls at the end, you know, like my dad preaches and at the end he's trying to, you know, sell people on coming down and giving their heart to Jesus. Even in that, like... I say frequently, uh, and I had a great conversation with uh, Caleb Follow from the Kings of Leon about this. You learn to feel music before you understand music. So even as a singer, you learn how to get quiet and you pull them in. Then you learn how to build it up. You know, they're in the same way with playing. And um, so anyway, well, so music oh, is prayer. It is. It is um, an expression. So anyway, all the Pentecostal stuff. So suddenly, so many services where there's conversations about the devil and about demons that are you know we're in a this world is a battle for good and evil and you know the devil uh, wants to overtake you and you know you, but you have the power over him in Jesus name and the blood of Jesus and blah 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 all the stuff so anyway I was suddenly as a high schooler I was fascinated by this and you know at this point the exorcist had come out and like all the stuff and 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 I was in the middle of this whole charismatic Pentecostal thing of feeling like, man, I'm not afraid of the devil because like I've got the blood of Jesus and 
man, like it just in the name of Jesus, get thee behind me, whatever. I love that and Jesus' so, blood is like the Gatorade you drink before. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's really, really more like kryptonite to the devil. It's like, you know, <laughs> you're untouchable. So anyway, I, one night we're staying at my grandparents' house, my dad's parents, which always felt a little dark. It just, they, you know, they had almost like the Southern Gothic pictures on the wall and whatever. And I was sleeping with my older brother. And at one point uh, in the middle of the night, I, I was asleep and I just went into this dream situation that I absolutely felt a dark presence, like a shadow thing overtaking me. I remember as it started, I started kind of wrestling with it. And then I just remembered, well, you, could, you know, just evoke the name of Jesus, just tell it to whatever. But I couldn't speak. It's like it had its hand over my mouth. And I just remember, then I start panicking and I'm wrestling and I'm fighting and I'm all this I'm perceiving is in my dream. And I'm just trying to say in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, and I can't speak. So everything's just in my mind, it's just coming out slurred. I can't say it. And it felt like, I don't know, like an hour in my sleep. It just was this, you know, battling. And, and I remember it was like I was laying down, but I had this presence around me and this grip and I couldn't break free. And finally, after the longest time, I remember turning my head and trying to shake my head away from how it was holding me. And I finally said, in the name of Jesus, whatever. And I woke up and my brother was over me, shaking me, going, what? is going on like what 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 is wrong what are you doing and i started telling him the story he goes man you were like all over the bed flinging your arms you're kicking you're fighting you're screaming of course in my dream i couldn't move my legs wouldn't even move but he said i just was like losing it like exorcist style in the bed <laughs> i'm like oh my god now the good side of that is i felt like that's well it's really good news that as soon as i said jesus it all stopped so i'm like okay maybe there's something to this mm. but yeah really wild you know, what always got me is preachers would preach how, you know, you're born into sin and into Adam's line. And they used to, there used to be this thing in the, in the evangelical church called the age of accountability. Because I, like, I was always like, well, you know, you're born innocent. Like, at what point do you decide? And they're like, well, you know, it's just an, it's just this age. I don't know when it is where suddenly you realize right from wrong, whatever. You get instead of an owl in the mail, it's a bat, I, whatever it is, a bat yeah. flies by you. I, I mean, and, and honestly, it sounds like it's kind of closely related to puberty. Then I remember reading, you know, that, you know, David said in Psalms that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're created in his image. Even every hair on our head is numbered. And I just always loved that, that it sounded so specific, like God so crafted you. So even in that, I was going like, well, we, you can't have it both ways. Are we made in His image, created in love by a loving Creator, or are we born into sin? And so they, you know, then thus you've got created this, you're living in the flesh or you're living in the spirit. And I think the issue is, it's like, there are definitely roads that you can go down, obviously that are hurtful to people and hurtful to yourself, that you want to call sin, whatever. But that stuff is absolutely magnified by being in an environment that constantly tells you, don't do these things. You know, I read this book called Classic Christianity years ago. And one of the things um, this guy named Bob George talks about in it is like, you know, for example, there could be a hole in the wall and you don't ever give any thought to looking in the hole. You just walk by it every day and you do your thing. But suddenly somebody writes, whatever you do, don't look at this hole in the wall and draws an arrow to the hole. And every day you walk by, all you want to do is look in the hole. And so that was kind of the situation with the church. It's like, you know, I don't know that I grew up thinking, man, how soon can I go have a beer? Or how soon can I, like, cuss? Or what? Smoke a cigarette. But, like, suddenly from a very young age, all you're hearing is don't do these things, don't do these things. And then you hear 
rock and roll songs about how awesome they are. <laughs> You're going, well, kind of all I want to do is try that. You know? <laughs> well, that is the problem with repression, right? Is that it, it has is. the absolute opposite effect. Absolutely. But I almost think you're set up for failure in that regards. They yeah. want they want people, not they, whoever they are, they want people to feel so shitty about themselves they have to come in and, and repent. Of and course. Part of the and in a perfect world, you know, process. this is a really, really, you know, I guess sort of a dark way of saying it but then suddenly you're bound to you've got this one person who they're the one that's the voice uh, or the or the, uh, the translator from God to tell you kind of what the thing is this week it's very and dangerous. oh by the way we're going to take an offering and yeah. oh by the way um, we get tax benefits Jesus um, loves you for a small fee absolutely and so it becomes all of that and even even in the most innocent aspect of what the church can be if you see it as um, God of the Bible and the stories of the Bible is valid and real and truth and all that. The New Testament church as it began just looks nothing like the church today. At least the Western civilization church. Just not even the same thing. You know? mm-hmm. so. Did, were you a youth pastor? Uh, I was later on. Yeah, I had um, I moved to Nashville. I was writing Christian music from the time I was 17 to probably 26 maybe. I had seven number one songs. As a writer. At 17? Uh, my first number one was at 17. Wow. Yeah, a song called Jesus is the Light by uh, a group that had been... The, the Alabama had blown up on the radio and country, so there was this big turn from Southern Gospel to some of these groups wanting to do like a Christian country thing. So um, you had groups like... I don't know how many of your listeners would even know this, but... You know the Oak Ridge Boys. Right before they went country, they had already they grew their hair out, and they were you know. But they had a great band, Tony Brown, who became one of the biggest producers in in uh, music history in Nashville, was their keyboard player. His name was he went by Tarzan at the time. He used to play for Elvis, and he played for the Oak Ridge Boys. And so they had already transitioned, and they had a steel player and a, a drummer and all this stuff. So some of these gospel bands did that. The Hensons, I, you know, Travis Howard, my buddy, we talk about it all the time. When you start listening, who's the best country singer? Is it Merle Haggard? Is it George Jones? Whatever. Check out Kenny Henson. Unbelievable singer. So anyway, with all this band stuff, this group called the Dixie Melody Boys decided to hire a band, and they went into Christian country and called themselves the DMB Band. They cut a song of mine called Jesus is the Light, and it went number one. About a year later, I had a song by a band called Mid-South called uh, Matter of Time that went number one. So anyway, moved on through that, decided I wanted to be in a country band because I love the Eagles and I wanted to do that kind of thing. So me and some boys that I uh, went to church with started a group called Western Flyer. And uh, I was a lead singer, played bass, um, wrote most of the songs with a guy named Tony Wood who's now probably had, I don't know, 40, 50 number one Christian songs. And that ended, we lost our record deal. That gave me a little intro into the country music industry that would become really important later. We lost our record deal, and I kind of didn't know where else to go but back into the church world because it's what I knew. So, And you were still deeply entrenched in the religion you were brought yeah, up Yeah, I was really starting to process. I, I mean, there, there's articles about Western Flyer and like Country Weekly and stuff where we, not, we didn't drink on the road. You know, we're all these Christian boys um, that didn't do all that stuff. So I didn't, um, I didn't really get into anything at that point, but I went back into the church world, was writing worship music a little bit, became like a, like a youth and worship pastor at this church. And it was, a really, it was a complicated time because I really, really loved and enjoyed that, and I was good at it, but I really wasn't, looking back, I really wasn't called to do it. It just it was kind of what I knew to do. And it's really, really funny because like being out in the world and you know chasing all the stuff, being in a country band, like I never, like I was really 
I was fine. I never got into any kind of trouble. And then suddenly, um, I'm on staff at this church, and I, you know, I went through this kind of fall from grace and this whole thing, and um, that ended up being a real anchor moment in my life because we ended up having to leave this church and um, going through for the first time in my life feeling like being on the outside looking in. Why did you leave? Uh, we were. I was asked to leave. Um, what did you do? <laughs> well, I ended up having an affair while I was on staff at this church forever ago. And it just, you know, it, it was a pretty conservative church, very conservative pastor. And so I had really young kids. had to walk through all of that. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, you know, the problem with this situation is it's all really public. I mean, looking back on all of it, it's all pivotal moments in my life, and it's all grown to this, this, this where I am now. It's led to where I am now. So, But at the time, the thing that became really important about it was, you know, I had just always been this pretty graceful guy. And I think I was pretty aware of my struggles or my temptations. Even if I didn't, like, carry them out and live in them, I felt just, I guess, authentic. And even though I was living in this very conservative thing. So the only reason I bring that up is, like, when this all happened, you know, before that I had friends who I would invite to church. They were like, why would I want to go to church? Like, I'm not accepted there or whatever. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm part of the church. I accept you. Come on. And then suddenly I felt what it felt like to kind of go like you you know your behavior doesn't line up to what we feel is adequate to be here and no forgiveness offered. no forgiveness and it was devastating it was like the darkest time of my life it was the first time i ever felt potentially suicidal it just was like because i just had really never done anything wrong up at this point so i felt really lost and like trying to yeah trying to find your way out it just was it just was like locked in this hole and over the course of time I did really, really a lot thanks to, there's an artist, I tell this story a lot when I go do these songwriting with soldiers things. There was an artist named Jennifer Knapp, who I just fell in love with, Christian artist from Kansas, and she did a couple of records back to back that really that time for me was just waking up every morning listening to those records. And just like, the first one was, was called Lay It Down. It was just this whole record of, you know, the sin, the stuff in your life, laying it down. And the next one was called The Way That I Am that was really about redemption and all this stuff. Anyway, <clears throat> after all this happened, I tried to go find Jennifer just to go say, I just want you to know how much this music meant. And she had disappeared. I called all my friends in Christian music world, where's Jennifer, and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, um, come to find out that she had come out as gay in the middle of her run as a Grammy-winning and Dove Award-winning Christian artist. And of course, that means your records are coming off the shelf, can't go play churches. Like whatever, you know, this is the early 2000s. So it suddenly made sense to me why these records really, really hit me. Cause she had basically been kicked out and castigated. And so, yeah, anyway, that, that, was, uh, that was that whole season. You, I believe you are a deeply empathetic, open minded, you, you see everyone in grant respect and kindness. I mean, you're nobody's fool, but I'm sure. just saying that you're very open. And were you, even as a kid, were you always like that, or is that something that grew into you? No, I think I think I was kind of like that, but just the way that I grew up, I was very, like I remember, I remember moments of, like sitting in our community swimming pool, at like I don't know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and I knew the Bible so inside and out from the way I learned it, in terms of how do you convince people they're going to hell and they need Jesus. I remember going to my house and get my Bible and sitting at the pool trying to convince my lost friends 
that they need Jesus. Like I was, my heart was that I don't want you to go to hell. And so I want to, you know, but no, I that, love you. Let me save that, you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But that really, it really did all change um, in 1999 with all of that. Because at that point it was like. When you left the church, you mean? Yeah. Because it was like, it was a, uh, and I didn't leave immediately. We went back to another church and we spent some time. That was the thing that sort of like suddenly kind of took the bow off the package and it was like you know if you are one of these people you feel like you've really really messed up in your life is there really grace for you and if there is is it in those four walls because it feels like those four walls get really really closed down and 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 then then i felt like you know the church will take you back if you go if you mess up and you go start all over you pull yourself together and you have this great repentance story then they'll take you back but in the middle of it, at the time that you're need, if Jesus is real, the time that you need that more than any other time is when you're not going to find it there. At least not in humans. That's right. You know, so yeah, so that definitely changed me to where uh, I think what I just began to realize is that all humans are flawed and all humans are broken if you want to put them through that, if you want to look at them through that filter. And that's why I always love like, you know, you know, beautifully broken, beautiful mess, beautifully flawed. Because that's what makes us human. It makes us what makes us authentic. It's the cracks, you know, that let the light in. It's just all that. So that definitely changed me to a deeper place of as I began to that started the journey from for me for seeing the flaws in the organization. For a while finding a whole new outlook for what spirituality was, who God was. And that really, really started my time of deconstructing and reconstructing all the theology in my life. And that's just a lifelong thing. As a young father, how did that change how you were deciding to raise your children? Wow, that's a great question because at the time that we left the church, Caleb, my oldest, was eight. And so very entrenched in that. My wife at the time did puppets at the church who were very, very involved, very popular there. Braden, my younger one, was a baby, so he kind of, two or three, I guess Caleb was seven, so Braden was two. So we kind of left. It's interesting, like if you talk to the two of them now, you know, Caleb had this foundation, this early foundation of all of the Christian stories and all the stuff, whatever. And then we ultimately left the organized church by the time Braden was, you know, uh, like vacation Bible school age and all that stuff. So he did not grow up. He grew up with a, he has a very, very functional view of God and the love of God and kind of figuring out his own thing through that. Um, Caleb has had to really deconstruct and his, his road has been more complicated on that because of, you know, just seeing all the stuff, dealing with all the stuff. During this whole time, did you ever lose faith in God or just in man? I think just in man, because I think I, I began to see God different because the way I often describe it, obviously, I, like anybody else, I made mistakes, but I didn't see myself as a mistake-making kid. I was kind of, I was a star performer. Really felt like I'd never done, any, I'd never been drunk at this point in my life. Um, and I just felt like I just didn't do stuff wrong, you know? And so then, it, it, it really, as silly as it is, it really felt like, how could I be like one bad mistake in and I'm suddenly out? I don't belong anymore. But I have to say, man, I, I, I got back into, you know, I was a musician 
and I got back into the music world. I went to church um, with a guy named Lincoln Brewster, um, who's a big worship artist. It's a cool worship name. leader. Yeah, he played he played guitar. Um, when I met him, he was playing guitar for Michael W. Smith, or he just stopped. But before that, he played with uh, Steve Perry from Journey. He was his guitar player. A guitarist is a young guy, a great guitar player. And I went to church with him, and there was a guy named C.J. Hatlevig, who's one of my best friends. He's actually a pastor now of a church in, uh, right outside of Sacramento. But those two guys, you know, uh, C.J. was leading worship at this church. He needed a bass player. And, uh, man, this was pretty early on, and where I'm just kind of in this lost place and trying to reconfigure things. And CJ goes, hey, I heard you play bass, and um, I'm like, well, I don't, you know, where'd you hear that? And I, word got around. Do you want to play? I'm like, well, I don't know that you. I was really at this place. I don't know that you want me on the platform. And he goes, and he just looked at me like, dude, I don't like. I need a bass player. He was just really like that. And so I ended up playing in church and ended up touring with Lincoln Brewster. And then we ended up we opened on a tour for Third Day. It was a really really big Christian band. While they had a. a a record called Offerings. It was a huge worship record. They played all amphitheaters, huge um, spots. And so um, so I suddenly, I had about four or five months of being out on the road with them and being able to play on stage and then just go sit out at the front of house with 20,000 people and just kind of take all this in. And that was all part of the thing. And like, man, late nights, you know, Matt Powell, their lead singer, who's just an icon in the Christian music world, uh, me and him and Lincoln just... I was able. They, I had the freedom to ask these questions. They were really awesome, and I was able to kind of go. You know, I mean, I know you're on stage and you're saying all this stuff every night, but I just wonder how it fits for someone who's just mired in shit right now. Like they're not, they're not going to go to church on Sunday and feel okay. You know, and how does this all work? So that was a. It was a really great time for just reconstructing all of it. Hmm. You know, and then ultimately, a little while later. I just I decided to take a 90-day sabbatical uh, from the organized church and never went back. So. Do you still feel close to God? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, really, the only things that I really miss are the communal aspects of it. Like, I, I really, really do love the power of voices joined together, singing about one thing. I think there's something really powerful in that. But I have to say, man, the first time I went to a Springsteen concert, and they're all singing along. I remember I went with my buddy Tony, a Christian writer guy, and, and I kind of elbowed him like, man, this feels a lot like an altar call at a Pentecostal church. Like, I'm not sure the spirit's any different, you know. Um, but I missed I, that. I would argue it's not any <clears throat> yeah, different. For sure. I, I think all music is prayer. I yeah. think that that's, that's why it's repetitive. That's why it, it does the cadence that it does. And as you said, it gets bigger and smaller. and. Yeah, goes up high to touch the rafters and beyond. It does. Yeah, and the and the, you know, the corporate communal. Oh, at a Coldplay show, something forty thousand people doing that, and it's like, man, we're all on the same frequency, and it's there's something spiritual about that for sure. Mm-hmm. That whole journey is different, um, but I don't walk through it in shame anymore, for sure. Amen to that. Yeah. And you are an incredibly successful songwriter, very very well known and, and well regarded and respected and beloved in the community and beyond. I'd love to touch on when you realized your new calling into that genre of music and also how that then segued into connecting with like Leslie Jordan, mm-hmm. and also the work you do with the soldiers. Well, the most powerful turn in my life 
on the career thing is so when I had my band Western Flyer, I played bass and sang lead. There were two other bands in country that their bass player sang lead. One was McBride and the Ride, Terry McBride. The other was Boy Howdy and a guy named Jeffrey Steele. So um, I didn't see Terry as much in those days, but I saw Jeffrey a lot. For some reason, we bumped into each other. He was a fan of our band, and we used to always joke about doing the Spinal Tap thing of a band of bass players, whatever. Years later, when I'm in the middle of all this stuff, this is probably 2002, maybe, I started missing writing country songs. And so um, I wrote a few songs, and I went back to our old band's manager just to play him some songs. Like, Can I just, I need somebody who loves me and cares enough about me. We've got two young kids. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Um, I need somebody to be honest with me and tell me whether I need to go work for UPS or maybe I've got some songs like yeah, let's try this so I went and played him some songs and he was very encouraging so I don't hear a hit but yeah I love your songwriting your singing whatever and he brought up Jeffrey Steele to me so I don't know if you remember Jeffrey but his band Boy Howdy has ended but he is on fire as a songwriter and just killing it and you know that's he used it as encouragement and I said well I think I've got Jeffrey's phone number and he kind of laughed at me he goes yeah, yeah you're not gonna be able to he's too busy whatever that was on a Thursday Friday morning um, I go to Starbucks like I was doing every Friday, Starbucks at Vanderbilt, <laughs> journaling, processing my life, going through this whole thing, and um, thinking, should I reach out to Jeffrey? And I'm sitting there journaling, I look up, and who walks in Starbucks? Jeffrey Steele. And so, probably had not seen him in, I don't know, six years. Talk about defining It was attention. crazy. And so I was sitting there going, okay, that's wild. Uh, go, well, I want to go up and talk to him but I don't want to bother him. You know, it's all this interplay in my mind. So I look up and, and um, suddenly Richie McDonald from Lone Star comes in and starts talking to him. And that distracts him. I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to interrupt them. So then Jeff orders his drink and he's standing at the barrister waiting for his, his drink. And he's by himself. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go up and say, oh, he's not gonna remember me though. And so I go up and I tap him on the shoulder and he turns around and uh, Danny Myrick, how the hell are you? And he gives me this huge hug. And I'm going, I mean, hey man, I'm good. I'm like, I'm good, like whatever. And he goes, uh, hey, you're still writing, right? Tell me, you're still writing, right? And I'm going like, well, I mean, like, you know, and all I could think of in my mind is like, well, I've kind of gone through this tough time. And I'm like, I, do, I you know, I'm just like stammering over words. And he grabs me by the shirt, gets up on my face, goes, dude, don't you fucking quit, man. How can I help? What do I have to do? Don't, don't you quit. And so, um, yeah, so he, it was on a Friday. He canceled his right. Sat with me at Starbucks for about two hours. We just caught up on life and stuff, and, and so uh, kind. Oh, it was unbelievable. And um, and he was so busy back then. And I mean, for the you listeners know. who don't know, Jeffrey Steele is a monolith of songwriting mm-hmm. talent, and just yeah, maybe 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 the best to ever do it in Nashville. He's one of the best. Certainly and one of the best. Especially especially the performing songwriter thing. Mm-hmm. He's a rock star, and he's in the Hall of Fame. But uh, yeah, so he said, what are you doing Monday? And I said, nothing. I was like, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out my life. So he said, meet me back here. So we go Monday morning, and I think we're going to have coffee and talk through again. Oh, just stuff. And uh, probably 30 minutes in, he goes, well, hey, well come, i got to write today. Come write with me. And so I go in on Monday. First, you know how that is. Like, you can't, like this would be the right. If I'm going, I want to get back in it. Who's the top? He would be the guy. It's bonkers. So he invites me over. We go to Windswept. Pacific where he was writing Steve Marklin was the publisher then and I go in and he's got to write with Tim Nichols okay who wrote another um, yeah who wrote live like you were dying uh, who's also in the Hall of Fame and a sweetheart of a sweetheart guy. of a guy so he pulls me in and to Tim's credit he's like well if Jeffrey brings him in it must be fine so anyway, we're sitting there writing 
And Steve Marklin knocks on the door and sticks his head and goes, by the way, the Tennessean is doing a story today on, <laughs> seriously, on independent publishers. And they may stick their head in a minute. So they're there interviewing him. So I'm in the middle of it, guitars out with, with Tim Nichols and Jeffrey Steele and a knock on the door and the photographer comes in. Do you mind if we get a few shots? I'm like, sure. So they come and they take these photos and the next day on the front page of the living section of the Tennessee and I'm on there with those two guys. That's insane. It's, yeah, it's crazy. It's probably 2002. And then, you know, Jeffrey basically just hammered Steve into signing me to a pub deal. And uh, my wife at the time had, had given me uh, like six months to get a pub deal. Like, okay, you can not work for whatever long. And I, yeah, I, you know, to her credit, I made no money and uh, ended up signing in December. Um, just the cheapest little pub deal that got me going, though. So, um, so that's how that all started. And then, um, you know, the next anchor moment in my life was uh, a couple of years later. I was out playing on the road some with Lincoln Brewster, some with a Christian artist named Mark Schultz. And uh, Mark called me one day and he said, hey, I've got this tour. And I was making, I think my advance was $2,000 a month with this pub deal. Two young kids. And he goes, uh, I've got this tour, page this much, blah, blah, blah. We've got 39 dates. And I'm just doing the math. But I've got to take this tour. So I go to Jeffrey and I say, hey, man, I don't know what to do about this. It's going to be about, you know, eight and a half weeks. I hate to be gone, but it's money, young kids, the whole thing. You know, Jeffrey grew up in it. He had kids early, and he's a touring musician and a songwriter. He goes, man, I totally get it. You do what you have to do. Whatever. He was great. Awesome. Lifted, you know, load off my back. I start walking off. He goes, but let me say this. Turns me back around. I said, what? He goes, well, at some point, you, you're going to have to decide if you're going to be a side man or a songwriter. And he said, you do whatever you got to do. I'm not going to, you know, jump in that decision. But I will say, any given afternoon... We can write a song that'll make you 15 times what you're going to make on that tour. And you're just not going to do it if you're not here. And so I remember the call home going, I'm not going to take the tour. And just kind of going, oh my God, you know, I was freaked out. But two weeks later, me and him and Shane Miner wrote International Harvester. Which is one of my favorite of your songs. Well, thank you. And I love the song, but it was life-changing for me. It was like the first hit song I had. and I, It was a huge and one. Yeah, it was a big song, and I would have been gone. I would not have been there for the ride. It would have happened. So anyway, the way those things all work together, so that's kind of how that all started with songwriting. And then um, he was just you know such a mentor for me, and um, I started having hits on the radio. And then probably seven years ago now, my buddy Travis Howard called me and said, hey, I've got a, a friend named Leslie Jordan, who's an actor, comedian. You might have seen him on Will and Grace or American Horror Story or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I know who that is. And uh, anyway, he said, we've written this musical, and uh, or he's written this musical, kind of about the church. And at the time, it was called Church, a spirited whatever, really on the nose. But it ended up being called Glory, Glory. And it was about super effeminate, kind of the size of Leslie Jordan, short, funny, super feminine preacher in the South that had a, this t traveling tent revival kind of thing, and he needed music for it, and he wanted sort of the Southern gospel music. So Travis called me, he goes, man, you and I grew up in this, this is our kind of music, let's do this. So Leslie flew to town like two days later and met me and my wife Meg uh, at a hotel, and just was the most surreal thing, and just like bopping through this, you know, the Marriott and Franklin. But we, we talked about this whole thing, we ended up writing this musical, did a couple of... Uh, um, readings of it, it was fantastic. And then 
COVID hit 2020 and um, everything changed. His world suddenly exploded. He was in everybody's home. His um, Instagram went bonkers went famous. 50,000 50, followers in March of 2020 to 5 million in June. Well, yeah. shit. I know. What are y'all doing? Screw <laughs> what are y'all doing? Screw he, um, he literally became Instagram's fastest to 5 million. And so I talk about an inspiring story. I mean, he had won an Emmy. Like, he had an acting career. He had he was known. Um, but the the biggest impact his life made was him just being himself and on ki- his phone. And you know? kindness. It's that thing again. It's, it's yeah. like when you are allowed to just be who you are, the light shines through you. I tell people all the time, like, I've been around some great people. And even in the church world, people who desire to be like Jesus. I've been around some people that are really good people. I've never been around anyone that gave me more of a sense of um, this is what Jesus was like. And not in terms of perfect behaviors, in terms of how he treated people. Everyone flocked to him. The biggest you know, takeaway that I have of the New Testament when I watch the church navigate politics these days is like, man, the world flocked to Jesus. Unchurched people flocked to Jesus. You know, prostitutes wanted to wash his feet with their hair. The you know, the most hated people of the day were tax collectors and, you know, Zacchaeus drop jumps down out of a tree and goes to lunch with Jesus. Like he you know, that and that's how Leslie was. And I you know, I just saw it over and over. It didn't matter if it was Dolly Parton or the person at the checkout at Safeway or Kroger. He treated everybody the same. They were all of monumental importance. He would stop and take time, you know. And so, anyway, yeah, he blew up during that time, and um, he started going over to Travis's house in, in um, Valley Village in L.A. and d- dropping these gospel songs every Sunday. And it suddenly became a thing. And, you know, to our whole conversation here, you had all these people, a lot of who were out living out as gay people or trans or whatever their life was, suddenly going, man, I walked away from that theology, but man, those songs still hit me in the heart, and they remind me of my grandmother, or going home to Alabama, to whatever, and just people all over the world, just and the celebrities that started commenting on him was really incredible. We had this random thing, he came to Nashville for a CMT thing in the middle of the lockdown, and CMT asked him to sing on the show, on their top 20, he goes, well, I'll do it if you'll let my friend Danny come play with me which is very much like him. So while he was in town, we ended up, uh, we did this record, this live stream thing, like everybody was doing during COVID. And then we went um, and sat down at this, the one restaurant we could eat at was the one at his hotel, and he starts singing Delta Dawn. So his... I've so, seen that video, yeah, it's so, so great. great. Delta Dawn. So Mike Lotus, his uh, partner, puts it up on Instagram, right? And about midnight, Tanya Tucker came into his DMs. Oh, I love you so much. If you ever make any music, I'd love to sing with you. So fast forward later in the year, we started, all this gospel stuff blew up, and we said, why don't we make a record? And uh, Liz said, well, you know, Tanya said she'd sing on it. We're like, whatever, she's not gonna sing on it. But he called her, and she said, I would love to sing on it, and I don't know if you know Brandy Carlisle, my producer, but she loves you. And she said she'd sing on it too. And so then over the next two weeks, he starts calling, because Chris Stapleton said he and his wife Morgan, will sing with us, and Dolly Parton said she would sing, and then we invited uh, Katie Pruitt, uh, this young artist that we really, really love, and 
um, Ashley McBride, Charlie Worsham, all these people. Charlie's Worsham, a sweetheart. He's great. Yeah, and so, and then the most random thing of all of it was um, when uh, Mike called and said, "Hey, I'm pretty good friends with Eddie Vedder. I think I could get him to sing, I'm like on the, on a gospel record. Really? Does Eddie know any gospel songs?" He goes, "Well, I don't think so." So, anyway, I ended up writing a song with Travis. Oh, I, I gotta say though, know. when Eddie Vedder sings, it is gospel. For sure. But here's the thing. He called me. So I know that I can make these stories so long. No, the nut, The nutshell is that he ends up coming and singing. I wrote this kind of Southern gospel song called The One Who Hideth Me with like King James, you know, hideth, who says hideth. But I wrote this song like that and he recorded it, did it on the record. When Leslie passed away, you know, we planned this big tribute in Nashville and he came into town. We sang it with a choir. It was this really incredible moment. So I'm at a party a few weeks later, and he texts me and said, hey, can you jump on the phone? And so Eddie Vedder says, can you get on the phone? I jump on the phone. So I'm, uh, I'm sitting out at this party. I'm laying on a pool chair. Might have been two or three tequilas in. Um, might have been flying on other sort of substances. But I'm, in this, I'm just looking at the stars, whatever. I'm talking to uh, Eddie Vedder. And, I'm, and he t- so tell me, where, the, where did this song come from? So I'm really explaining to him my Southern Gospel roots. So he goes, which was just mind-blowing to me because it's the most obvious thing. I just It hadn't hit me. He goes, how amazing that the thing that you started with, the style of music you started with, that you walked away from, ends up coming back full circle with a guy in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame singing a song you wrote. I don't ever sing songs I don't write, unless I'm covering Neil Young or somebody. And then you end up with this recording, and it's not your current style, it's what you grew up doing. And like you said, like I don't know what specifically God is, but if that's not, I don't know what is. Amen. And I was like, man, it just was like... And so those are things, you ask if I feel close to God, those are the things that didn't happen to 12-year-old me, but happen now, because I feel like I'm open to it. But you've... Here's the thing about that, is that... You know that have you ever read Screw Tape Letters? Mm-hmm. I bring oh, yeah. it up a C.S. lot. Lewis, yeah. I love that book. And and there's that moment I talk about this on the show a lot, actually, this is this book impacted me so much that when Screw Tape is telling his nephew, there's gonna be times in a human's life when they think God isn't with them. They never say God because right, they can't right. utter his name, but right. or her name or their name. Uh, and he says, But just you wait because even they don't realize that it's that he's right beside them, letting them walk on their own two feet. But he never leaves their side. They yeah. just don't know because, like any father to a child, they have to learn to walk on their own. But there's still guidance. So I'm paraphrasing a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's such a beautiful. It makes me cry every time I read it. Yeah. And it is that thing. It's like you <laughs> makes me want to cry now. You can. It's okay. <laughs> you were never left. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great um, quote, which I'll totally botch it, but they basically, someone asked him what he researched to be able to essentially get in the mind of Satan, to be able to know how Satan works. And he said, uh, he said, my own human, how do you say it? Basically, my own human tendencies taught me everything I needed to know about how Satan works. I thought, wow. <laughs> well, that's, that's that thing about we hide behind the word Satan yeah. or the devil in order to make a reasoning behind 
Oh, there's no, no, so Satan now. Yeah. <laughs> it's my son. Susan called you Satan, Braden. Oh, I love Braden. Uh, so, yeah, I just, it is so apparent in your life that you've never been left. You may have left what you understood it to be, Yeah. but you've been holding hands the whole time. Yeah, thank you for saying that. That's the greatest way to put it. I mean, the way... When people ask me, and, and they do, I get asked frequently, I mean, do you, do you consider yourself a Christian? I'm very hesitant. First of all, I'm hesitant with that word because of what it has become with the way the organized church has defined Christianity from the time of the moral majority in the 80s to where we are now with basically, it seems like the mission is more intentional on political power than it is the mission of Jesus. So I'm very careful about using that word. I don't like calling them morally. Yeah. But that's well, no, no, but I'm, no, the moral majority. <laughs> yeah, I, no, you know, I know. Yeah. Jerry Falwell and Pat Roberts. So my dad joined it immediately. Yeah. We went, we did a family vacation one year that we went to PTL club. And we no did way. Thing. Yeah, story for another time. Family vacation. Seriously, that's where we <laughs> like were. Like see Chevy Chase in that movie. There's, there's, a, there's a picture, <laughs> there's a picture of me and my brother sitting in the backseat of this car and I'm wearing a PTL shirt amazing um which was jim baker's thing uh praise the lord club passively um on on specific theology and people ask well you know do you think jesus is god's son blah 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 my whole thing's like i don't know like none of us know but i do know that i have a sense that we were very intentionally put here where we are when we are the timing the people we're around we're put here to commune with people to find a group of people a circle of people that we can love and serve and uh, be there for, live with day in, day out. Which, honestly, if you go back to Acts, when the first church started, that was the church. They basically were living together, not like communal, like 60s, like living together. They were living among each other and taking care of each other. And whatever that means, all I know is I've never, since those dark days, I've never felt repelled or disconnected. And also, have found um, just the power of, of God, if you want to call it God, and the ability to question or be angry or argue with or debate with. And ultimately my thought is like, man, if you don't have a God that's big enough that you can question or argue or whatever, then what's the point in giving your life to that? You know? Mm-hmm. And because um, like, you know, life is mysterious. And, you know, the fact that these sects from the South that lead the nation in obesity and lack of education and all these things, not to bag on the South, I love the South, but it's just those people are the ones to say out of all the mysteries of God, we're the ones who figured out who he is (laughs) and what he wants and what he wants you to do. Um, And we'll tell you if you'll bring your offering. (laughs) And your $20, yeah, if you bring your $20. (laughs) That's right. The thing that, getting back to Leslie, and the comment you made about how he was so loving, and and I, I definitely feel that he was a light that drew people in, as you mm-hmm. said, from 50,000 to millions mm-hmm. of followers. He was a beacon in a yeah. very dark time. Yeah. And it's pretty hard to not see Christ's consciousness in that. Yeah. And that he left so fast. Yeah. In the middle of all that, he just, it was, it's almost like, even though he, lived to be what how old was 60? He was 67 i yeah. think when he died which is not long enough in yeah. my humble opinion but it's interesting that in the very last flash of it he became this thing yeah. for people this beautiful beautiful thing and then he was taken away yeah 
almost as quick as he was there for a lot it's, of people. It's, it's, it's very Jesus-like. It is so It's like this very, very, very parallel to Jesus' story. It's like, I remember mean, like, you know, who you are. Yeah. Remember who we all are. Yeah. I got to go. It's really fascinating. Like I said earlier, he had done a lot of things and a lot of things he was proud of. A lot of things he didn't regret, but a lot of, a lot of dark things. But what was amazing, you know, is that he, by putting them out there and owning them and saying, this is who I am, this is what I've done, he kind of, uh, you know, he owned it and he took the, the fear out of it. And then that allowed him to say, like, look at my life, man, you can do this too. You can start over too. The thing that's the most amazing to our conversation on religion and theology and spirituality is that, you know, the the Instagram journey took him back to the church that bullied him and made fun of him, but he didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's interesting. For some reason, he found his way back. He found this comfort level of um, being sort of banished and flamboyantly gay, four foot eleven, like all the things you could be picked on for. For some reason, he had he had reconciled his anger toward that and got back to a place. I think the way he said it was like, you know, I kind of found that I could sit in a pew and, and listen to what you know the preacher was saying, and I if I felt comfortable taking some of those things and just kind of leaving them there on the floor, going, well, that's not really for me. Then there might be something because you know what. I could take that. I could take that with me. That really means something to me. And so, anyway, I find it just fascinating and ironic that the last two or three years of his life came back to that original foundation and using those old songs. That honestly, some of them, even theologically, are pretty restrictive. But um, to use that just to say, "Be who you are and love who you are." And it absolutely it changed the world, and it's and and it's funny even the you know especially musically uh, in Nashville making that record being able to do the tribute that we that we did none of those people would have been there pre COVID, and so the greatest you know moment of his life the 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 brightest light shining was when he wasn't acting he just was being himself saying the things that we all thought in a funnier way, and um, gosh I mean I, I heard it a million times from the biggest of stars going, man, you were every morning picking up my phone, going straight to your Instagram. It's the first thing I did when I couldn't leave the house and everything was so dark. What what an amazing mission, if mm. you call it that. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk about the soldiers. Okay. How did that start? And, um, for, and explain what that is that you did. Um, there's, there's an organization called Songwriting with Soldiers uh, that I work with. Really, really incredible organization. It started, a, a buddy of mine named Jay Clemente, who's a great songwriter in town, um, good friends with Luke Bryan, had a ton of cuts in the Christian music world. I met him years ago with some buddies of mine named the Thompson Brothers. They had a band called the Lucky Bucks on Warner Brothers, and I met them back then. And then out of the blue, maybe uh, late 2020, early 21, Jay calls me and says, hey, I'm working with this organization, um, and I think that you would be great to do this. And um, basically, there's a couple of things they do. They do these writer retreats where we'll go in, two or three songwriters with seven, eight, nine veterans or first responders or spouses of, partners of, and sit down with them at those retreats, sit down one-on-one and kind of get their story and all the difficulty of it and write a song with them pertaining to their story. And then there's, they do a thing called Warrior Path, which is um, like a six-night, more in-depth thing, seven or eight 
or nine veterans and then the fifth night of that is a song thing where I'll go in by myself and I'll write with this group of veterans and it's very intense short period of time you know two or three hours to get to know them a little bit come out of it with a song that says something about you know their life that really kind of de- in detail paints their life and man it's just it's been the most fulfilling thing I've ever done it's it takes me out of myself my selfish writing and I don't mean that in a negative way but I'm not writing for me I'm not writing for Jason Aldean or anybody else I'm just sitting there with these men and women hearing their stories and going man how can I serve their story and uh, man seeing how it impacts them it's pretty incredible so yeah I'm grateful to be doing it I do probably one of these things a month yeah, go check it out. It's songwritingwithsoldiers.org, I believe. It's beautiful work. Yeah. It's great. It's it's, it's and important. You know, I, I don't process it like that. It's I don't I don't feel like I'm not patting myself on the back on any way for it. It's just it's kind of crazy to me to sit in there with um, some veterans who have been through what some of these men and women have been through, and candidly to watch how our country, which really is such a great country, but. Um, doesn't support them. No, it really, it, the, 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 I hate to use the word disposable, but they can really be a little bit disposable after their use is done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they just, they've just believed in the best of all of us and given everything. They're, the, the biggest thing that I run into with them, and we talk about it literally every writing session that comes up, is they don't, they just don't really know how to put the spotlight on themselves and serve themselves. Like everyone, and they're wired to go give everything they have to serve others, and then now they're they're honestly one of the things that brings them in to try to get help and do better is that they want to serve their kids or their spouse or their you know their family their community, and so they want to deal with their PTSD and all the stuff that they're dealing with, and really not even for them, they want to be better for the people around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't really have a, a lot of great services for them, but. Um, uh, yeah, songwriting with soldiers is doing great stuff. It's not like music therapy. It's really just going in, helping them put a story to their song. And uh, I've had tons of them just tell me, like, man, I wasn't able to, you know, tell my wife or my husband or, you know, my son or whatever ex- exactly what I went through. But I played them the song, and they kind of got a picture of it. Naming the pain makes a huge difference. We say that all the time. To give the monster under your bed a name, call it out. It weakens its power. It's like. In Jesus' name. Yeah, absolutely. And they absolutely. always say if you can call a demon by its name, it, it can't That's have right. dominion over you. It's That's the right. same idea of trauma and pain. Yeah. You call it what it is. You tell it's. You tell the story. It's very hard to get there. Yeah. For all of us who have I mean, been I through think, some serious trauma, it's a yeah. hard thing to get through. Very so difficult. it's a really beautiful work that yeah. you're doing. Thank you. It's it's. I, we talk about all the time in these sessions that like, I know when I share my story and I share the things that I'm a little uncomfortable talking about mistakes or whatever things in my life you know part of their thing is the things I'm sharing are things nobody lives with you know the the soldier that I was sent to take out the enemy soldier that had a 13 year old kid with him that I had to take out both of them the things they have to live with are just not the things that you tell other humans that don't live in that world so they they kind of convince themselves I can't I can't I just can't share that and then we get in these moments where we're able to share some of those things. Sometimes those very specific things go in the songs. Sometimes they don't, but they've shared it. And that's part of what we talk about uh, as I'm leaving them is the power of sharing your story because it not only does it create empathy with the listener 
and they realize they're not the only ones that are a little screwed up but it names the monster and the more you talk about that and you put it out there it weakens it so yeah it's great i love that thank you for asking about that Danny, I love you. This I is great. You Will you tell people how to find you when they want to listen to your music or check you out? Yeah, I've got um, I've got a couple of records out on Spotify and Pandora, Apple, iTunes, all the stuff, and um, and then you know Instagram's just my name, Danny Myrick. Uh, Facebook, I'm not on Facebook often, but it's there. You know, but I, I, you know, if I'm playing shows or whatever, I'll typically post that. And if you want to like have some back and forth and get kind of. Uh, sarcastic and snappy and fun go to Twitter I'll do that every now and then I'm a slave to Twitter that's why I have a hard time putting it down <laughs> thank you for being here or thank you for having me be here since yeah, it's your hotel room right. thank you for doing what you do I love you and I love your spirit so much and you're, uh, you're changing the world thanks love podcast at a time yay thanks for listening everybody bye rate, review and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.